The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. A study in the UK in 2013 found that, quote, approximately 85,000 women experience rape, attempted rape, or sexual assault by penetration in England and Wales alone every year. That's roughly 11 every hour. Approximately 90% of those who are raped know the perpetrator prior to the offense. And according to the Office for National Statistics in the year ending March 2021, women are more likely to be killed by those closest to them. 32% for a partner or ex-partner, 17% for a family member, 6% for a friend or acquaintance, 5% for a stranger, and in 33% of the cases, there was no suspect charged. On December 9, 1986, a 24-year-old woman was brutally raped, beaten, and strangled while walking home from a friend's house in Portsmouth in Hampshire in the south of England. An 18-year-old Navy sailor was convicted of her murder, but 16 years later, DNA would exonerate him of the crime, marking the first time in UK history that occurred. But sadly, her real murderer has still not been identified. This is the story of Linda Cook. Linda Cook was 24 years old at the time of her death and was dating a man from Portsmouth, living with him and his mother, Linda Gray, in her home on Victoria Road North. The son had been sent to a detention center on November 14th of 1986, but Linda continued to live with his mother. She was working as a local barmaid, more commonly referred to as a waitress or server nowadays. Portsmouth is a world-renowned port, and its history can be dated back to Roman times. For centuries, it has been used as a base and dockyard for the Royal Navy, located just 70 miles or 110 kilometers southwest of London. Portsmouth has a current population of 238,800 people. The city covers just 40 square miles or 15.54 square kilometers, while for comparison, London covers roughly 600 square miles or 1,560 square kilometers. The majority of the city also sits on Port Sea Island, which is a natural island separated from the mainland by a narrow tidal known as Portsbridge Creek. Portsmouth is the most densely populated city in the UK outside of London. Unfortunately, I'm not really sure of her circumstances, like her childhood or family life, and I couldn't find much information at all about her or her life beyond her murder. And again, that is common, especially in older cases or ones like this that have been sensationalized in the media, which I'll get into. There just tends to be more focus on the crime than the victim. 
I think the only reason we even know a bit about her living situation is because Linda Gray was obviously questioned about Linda Cook's whereabouts prior to her death to help piece together the timeline of events. But I do really wish that I was able to give a little bit more information about who Linda really was. What we do know is at around 11.30 p.m., Linda left home to go visit a friend on Sultan Road in Portsmouth, which is about 1.3 miles or 2 kilometers from her home on Victoria Road North. She had left just after midnight to head back home, and that is when tragedy struck. Now, I am a little bit confused on that timeline because if she left around 11.30 and had to walk 1.3 miles or 2 kilometers to the friend's house and then left just after midnight to head back, it's a bit strange. So I'm not sure if she got there, maybe the friend wasn't there or if she was just quickly picking something up and then walking back home. But that is what the research said, and I wish there was a little bit more clarity on why she was going there and maybe who she was going to see. That would just give us a little bit more insight. Sometime between 12.30 and 1 a.m., Linda was attacked. The route she walked was past an area of wasteland known as Mary Row, which is beside Lake Road. Now, this was in 1986, and I tried to see what that area looked like, but today it's just homes, businesses, and such. So I'm not sure what it looked like as a wasteland and what that exactly entailed. Lake Road was on her way home, meaning she didn't go out of her way, and it didn't appear she was taken to another location. I spoke about this a lot in the story of Sarah Everard, which was in episode 26, but any woman should be able to walk home alone without being attacked, sexually assaulted, or murdered, period. We are not asking for it to be out late, dressed in any way, or any other stereotypical response people make to justify the actions of men. Again, and I discussed this a lot in my recent episode, the story of Cheryl Arujo, in episode 38. But it infuriates me that as a woman, I have to look over my shoulder and it's not seen as a problem. When women are attacked, it's often blamed on the victim. And it's questioned, like, how could she have prevented it? Or what could she have done differently? How about men don't attack women? How about that? Even yesterday, middle of the afternoon, I was walking up a more secluded area, slightly wooded, but not too much. It is a pathway with stairs, but in the middle, it can be quite like you're alone in that area. And every time I pass through this section, I take my headphones out and my sunglasses off so I can see all around me just in case. And I guarantee not one single man who walks in that spot thinks that way, not even for a second. And I wish for a day where women aren't targeted and can live their lives without the fear of being sexually assaulted or murdered. And it's so sad to me that we have to continue teaching the next generation these same lessons and to be so cautious 
and all these little tips and tricks that we've learned and have been passed down through generations. I just wish it could stop and we could just not be murdered. It's estimated that Linda's attack took a minimum of 15 minutes, during which she was raped and strangled. Her attacker also stomped on her while she was on the ground, quote, with such force that her jaw and spine were fractured, her larynx crushed, and imprints of his right athletic shoe were retained on her abdomen, end quote. This was a brutal and violent attack. Afterwards, her naked body was just left there, where it was found by a passerby the next day. Police were called immediately, and her death was ruled as a homicide. It was obvious that she had been sexually assaulted, and samples were taken from her body. Semen was found, and a blood type was determined. Because remember, this was in 1986, before technology had advanced with DNA to where it is now. They did take fingernail samples also, and some fibers were located, but it was noted Her fingernails weren't broken, implying she didn't scratch her attacker, or at least not viciously. She was likely ambushed and not given time to fight back. But it's worth noting that everyone reacts differently to instances of trauma, so there's no right or wrong. If you freeze or fight, it's all perfectly normal. And this is just the information that was presented, and so I'm just sharing my research. The primary evidence collected from Linda's body consisted of the semen found, and therefore the blood type of the killer, and also the imprint of the shoe from the violent stomping. A suspect was not identified immediately, but a young sailor passing through Portsmouth would soon become the main focus in the murder of Linda Cook, changing the course of his life and allowing her true killer to escape justice. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. Femicide has surpassed 13,500 downloads, and I cannot thank you enough for your support. If you haven't already, please leave a review. It helps so much in getting my podcast out to a wider audience. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope through these stories we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. I researched, wrote, and recorded and edited this episode myself. To help support me and my efforts, I have started a Patreon account. And if you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Just $5 a month will allow you access to one additional episode every month. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app, and I will leave a link in the show notes of this episode. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships each month to various charities that help support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of November 2022 is Anishinaabe Health Foundation. Quote, Guided by the teachings of traditional healers, elders, and medicine people, 
we aim to build a healthy, strong Indigenous community by looking at health holistically. We don't just offer a bandage solution. We are helping clients to overcome barriers to health and living a good life. Barriers such as homelessness, poverty, trauma, abuse, and addiction, end quote. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families because word of mouth is the best review of all. Michael Shirley was 18 years old at the time of Linda's murder. He was an able seaman, which is a rank in the Royal Navy. He was docked in Portsmouth at the time, aboard the HMS Apollo. On the night of Linda's murder, he had been out at a nightclub called Joanna's in the South Sea area of Portsmouth. He met a woman named Dina Fogg at the club, and the two headed home together to her home in a taxi. After a short five-minute ride, the taxi arrived at an apartment building, where Dina stated she had to pick up her child from her mother's. But instead, she ditched Michael and left the building from another exit and went home alone. She apparently lived close by to this location. So I'm not sure if she just used him for a ride or if he creeped her out on the ride home and so she changed her mind. But after about 15 minutes, Michael realized he was tricked. He paid the taxi and walked around a bit to look for Dina. Whether to confront her, or maybe he thought there was still a chance to go home with her. And I'm, I'm not sure why he would go looking for her, but that's what he said that he did. Before giving up, finally, and going back to the ship, where he clocked in at 1.45 a.m. aboard the vessel. Now, I'm not sure where the apartment was or his ship in relation to where Linda was murdered, but prosecutors at trial theorized that after being stood up by Dina, Michael, quote, saw Miss Cook, who was walking along Mary Row, and in his frustration and angry state, he attacked her, raped her, and murdered her before going back to HMS Apollo, end quote. Two days after this encounter, Michael and Dina ran into each other and spoke briefly, with Michael mentioning Linda's murder and their close proximity to it on the same night. This conversation was apparently, quote, intimidating to Dina, who told police about Michael when questioned during a canvas of homes in the area. Michael left Portsmouth to visit his parents over Christmas and returned in January, where he was set to depart on the ship to the Falkland Islands, which are located off the coast of South America. Before leaving, he stopped into Joanna's again on January 5th, 1987, where Dina identified him to police, and he was subsequently arrested and charged with Linda's murder. So besides Dina's statement of being with him the night of Linda's murder, why did police zero in on Michael? Firstly, the shoe that was used to stomp on Linda's chest was a specific size and style that matched a pair that Michael owned. When questioned, he said he, quote, may have been wearing them that night. But as it turned out later, the shoe was very popular at the time, 
and 250 had been sold in Portsmouth alone, with 9,000 being sold in the UK that same year. He also had some scratches on him when taken into custody. But as I stated previously, it did not appear that Linda fought back, so it's likely her attacker didn't have marks on him from her. Michael stated he had received them back in October of 1986 while aboard the ship in Barbados, which could not be proven one way or the other. The police also stated that Michael lied about Dina's name in an effort to mislead police and, quote, concoct his alibi. But as it turned out, Dina gave him a false name, calling herself Sue when they met, which is really common in a nightclub. But police ignored this information. At trial, the prosecution stated, quote, that he was deliberately concealing his knowledge of the girl's identity in the hope that he would prevent the police from tracing her, end quote. And finally, Dina's account of the timeline of events created a 30-minute window in which the police theorized gave Michael ample time to commit the murder. But she did initially give proper timing, which was not told to the jury, and the taxi log confirmed her initial timeline, meaning there was no 30-minute window. Evidence that was also not presented at trial. She had been questioned for roughly 10 hours and was nervous about her baby and her mother waiting outside. And that's why it said that she gave the wrong timing during the second statement. So besides having the same shoes that were likely at his parents' home the night of Linda's murder, as it turned out, and a matching blood type that 24% of the UK also had, there was no physical evidence linking Michael to Linda's murder. No blood on his clothes, no fibers, nothing. It was all circumstantial evidence. And yet, after a 10-day trial and just six and a half hours of deliberation, the jury returned a guilty verdict. And on January 28, 1988, Michael was sentenced to life imprisonment. Now, this story is about Linda, and I wish I could talk more about her. Unfortunately, again, there's just no more information. But Michael, too, was a victim. His appeal was rejected by a judge who stated there was, quote, no lingering doubts, end quote, about his guilt. In 1992, he went on a hunger strike for five weeks to raise attention to his case. He then held a rooftop protest in frustration of new evidence not being taken seriously and only came down when he was allowed to speak with a journalist. Neil Humber had long thought Michael was wrongfully imprisoned and worked to help to get his case looked at again. I won't go into all the details as there is a lot of back and forth, but essentially Michael was met with obstacle after obstacle in his attempts to be freed. He fought for years to have his DNA tested, but was told that the evidence had been lost or thrown out, a lie which was eventually tested after they, quote, found a slide in a drawer, end quote, in 2001. Finally, in July 2003, 
Michael was released from prison, being acquitted of all charges due to his DNA not matching the semen found at the scene. Upon his release, he stated, quote, I feel I never had my 20s. I suppose you can't miss what you haven't had, but I certainly feel like I have missed the prime of my life. I would love to go back all those years and live my life. Would be married or single, in the forces or out. I had been thinking of transferring to the Marines, but I will never know if I would have made it. At 18, I thought I knew everything, but I now realize how naive I was. I may have been a clumsy, uncouth fool, but I was a law-abiding one. I missed the millennium celebrations, Princess Di's funeral, and the Gulf War, which I may have been involved in. Birthdays and Christmas were just another day to me. Everything has progressed so much, yet in some ways have stayed the same. The next step is to sort myself out with a bank account and benefits until I start to work again. I don't know what work I'll do, but I don't want to work in a factory or office. I would feel closed in. Plus, I will always be with people who doubt me or wonder if I did it. End quote. I can't imagine spending 16 years in prison for a crime I didn't commit. And this happens way too often. I spoke of this also in the episode um, 31, the story of Angie Dodge, but how terrifying it must have been. How hard it would be to be protesting your innocence and have no one believe you. And the shock of being sentenced and imprisoned knowing you did nothing wrong. My heart goes out to all those who are wrongly convicted. Michael could have been released by the parole board after serving 15 years had he admitted guilt and shown remorse, but he wouldn't, stating, quote, I would have died in prison rather than admit something I didn't do. I was prepared to stay in forever, if necessary, to prove my innocence, end quote. Quote, new figures show that 84 people were wrongly convicted of crimes between 2007 and 2017 in the UK. Charges ranged from murder to rape and included people serving life sentences. At least half of those who had their convictions overturned spent time in prison, amounting collectively to more than 100 years in custody. End quote. But the saddest part of this whole story is that Linda's real killer was never found. They spent so long fitting Michael into the role of killer that they never even looked for other suspects or evidence. In fact, prior to Linda's murder, there had been six sexual assaults in the area of Buckland in Portsmouth, which is where Linda was visiting her friend. Was Michael even in Portsmouth during the other attacks? Were they linked in connection to each other, or did the police choose to ignore those assaults in an effort to prove Michael's guilt? Another man named David Fuller, who worked as a hospital electrician, was believed to be involved at the time, but was eventually cleared of Linda's murder in 2021. 
He was convicted of murdering two women in Kent, which is about an hour and a half from Portsmouth, and also sexually assaulting 99 corpses in hospital morgues, which is just disgusting on so many levels and utterly disrespectful. Like, I actually have no words for that. But with this announcement, Linda's killer has once again evaded justice. Perhaps he moved following her murder and continued assaulting more women. Maybe he died or killed himself. For some reason, his violence escalated that night into murder, but it was also a violent attack with a lot of rage. Maybe he knew her in some way, from the bar she worked, or she had offended him in some way. Maybe she said something that night that just set him off and he beat her to death. We might sadly never know because of police that were so eager to make an arrest that they put an innocent man behind bars. And at the end of the day, a young woman lost her life. And those that love her have no answers. Thank you for listening to the story of Linda Cook. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story.